Well, I had fun during that song service. I hope, hope you all had uh, fun as well. It uh, reminds me of being young again. The, the fact that I didn't even know I knew the motions until I, until I started to do them shows that some of those things are uh, learned in such a way that, that uh, they're just right down in the heart of your soul and you can actually remember them. Well, we're heading into the holiday season now. We have Thanksgiving coming up. We have uh, Christmas coming up. You probably already noticed the stores have changed. Uh, you notice uh, there's a new level of stress. Uh, there are plans that need to be made. Uh, there are relatives uh, coming to visit. Uh, there are so many things that are happening. And then all the special programming. Uh, so we have uh, programs that we're planning for Thanksgiving, programs for Christmas, and it can get stressful. Uh, stress, in some ways, you might say to yourself, uh, has no purpose at all. It uh, uh, is just an irritation. It's a nuisance. It's a distraction. But actually, the Word of God speaks to us of how God would like to use stress in order to produce in us a godly character trait of endurance. So if you'll turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1, uh, we would like to look at how God uses trials to produce uh, the godly character trait of endurance. James, chapter 1, will begin in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man not, not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Jump ahead to verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved... He'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it, gives, it brings forth death. What's interesting is the same circumstance, the same stressor in our lives can serve to form a test by which we respond properly and gain endurance, or we can run away in fear from this stressor and allow it to form a temptation when within ourselves we start to make plans to sin as a result of this stressor, and we end up bringing upon ourselves death and destruction. 
And so it can be good, it can be bad, but we can't say that we'll avoid them completely. These stressors are built into our lives in the world in which we live, and God actually uses them to demonstrate the character that we have of trusting in him and that we are learning from him how to endure. You watch the stressors in Jesus' life. He comes to announce to us the truth, uh, to tell us uh, that God himself has sent him uh, to be the promised Messiah, to be our Savior, and people are not believing him. That's stress. He shows them miracles. Uh, He shows them love. He teaches them truth. Uh, Those who are his sheep, as they hear his voice, they should be able to recognize the Father's voice in him. My sheep hear my voice. They come and they follow me. However, a number of people, even religious leaders, are not buying it that he is the promised Messiah, that he is our Savior. Stress, trial, it could present itself as temptation, but we wouldn't want to react to it in the form of temptation. Instead, we want to react to it in the form of turning in faith to God and asking him for his help. So let's break this down uh, moment by moment and see how our Lord Jesus responded to this and see how we should respond to this as well. In verse 2, it says, consider it all joy. In other words, we're going to have to start with our attitudes. And in fact, my wife and I have uh, an abbreviation for a person with a poor attitude. It's D-R-A, dirty, rotten attitude. And so we'll even name it if a person's starting to have a wrong attitude, if the person is irritable, if the person is beginning to overreact, if the person is uh, not responding properly to uh, how they should entrust themselves to the Lord and ask for help, we would say he has a DRA, which in our short speak is basically calling it out and saying what it is. We're not supposed to say, oh, woe is me, here it goes again, I'm under stress again. He says, no, consider it all joy. In fact, he speaks of it as pure joy. In other words, we would welcome this. And I've actually taken God at his word here and said, all right, I'm going to have a different attitude. I had a moment there where I was asked, do I want to despair as a result of this stressor, or am I going to give it over to you in joy, and am I going to trust you through this? We can, the moment the stress hits, the, the moment we realize here comes a trial, consider it something terrible by which we are tempted uh, to lose faith, to lose trust, uh, to trust in ourselves, to rebel against God and do something that's harmful and unhealthy, or by responding with joy, Uh, we could actually ask God for wisdom as to how he would like us to respond and ask him for strength for this. So he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter, and the picture is uh, falling into, 
various trials. In other words, they come in all shapes and sizes, all forms. And sometimes even the smallest thing, if you're already irritated, even the smallest thing can set you off. And you might just say to yourself, I need to just walk away at a moment. I need to take a, a deep breath. I, I need to cool down. I need not to say anything at this moment. Because these trials come from the outside and test us. We're not supposed to, in a sense, thank God that the trial is here. We're supposed to uh, have joy in the fact that God is developing Christ-like character in us through this. So if we'd say there's something good that comes out of this, then we realize uh, that there is some help. When I was very little, uh, they didn't have a lot of oral medicines, and they gave a lot of the medicines uh, by injection through a needle. And so going to the doctor was a fearsome thing. And I would try to persuade the doctor that surely I'm not that bad, uh, even though I have something for which my mother felt it was necessary to go see a doctor. And no, I did not want a shot. But actually, I had no voice in this. The doctor would speak, my mother would agree, and would come the nurse, and I would get the shot. So as, as we were... Uh, reminiscing about childhood and uh, these, they weren't lethal injections, but they hurt. Uh, Carol was telling me, you have no idea. In America, you have these little tiny skinny needles. Well, we had penicillin so thick that the needle was almost as thick as your finger. And she said, they would call the nurse and the nurse would come with this giant needle. And she said, I would run. So I've never known her as a child. I didn't meet her until I was in college. Uh, but she, <laughs> she would first run around the house, then she'd run outside, then she'd run into the backyard, then she'd hide behind various bushes that had thorns on them. And the poor nurse, <laughs> they'd eventually catch her and she'd receive the shot. Now that we're old, now that we're mature, we realize, yes, there's this momentary discomfort but this is actually going to make you better. And it's horrible to be sick for an either longer time. It's horrible to be sick in a way that it, it would endanger long-term health. And so we've come to learn that things as simple as getting a shot is actually leading to something good. So he's saying, don't view the trial, the difficulty, as if this is destructive. It could be if we allow it to turn into a temptation and we... Uh, handle it completely wrongly, uh, a temptation to not trust in God, a temptation to rebel, a temptation to run away from it in a sense. But if we welcome the trial as an invitation for stamina, for endurance, then we have the right mindset. Have you thought of this in athletic terms? And, and Paul will say, I buffet my body. It's not buffet, it's buffet. I buffet my body to make it my slave so that I will not be disqualified. And so he realizes trials will come, but I will hold myself accountable to respond in the proper way. The way you convince yourself of this is to say there is an advantage to this trial. There's good that comes out of it. The trial itself can be viewed from various angles. 
and we can say, oh, this is going to be destructive, this is horrible, this is terrible. And at times I, when I start to feel this way, Carol will say, like, you don't know that yet. And, and she's right, I don't know that yet. In fact, I'm worrying about where it could lead, but I really don't know that yet. He says in verse 3, knowing, and largely it comes from experience, from the success of handling the trials well, knowing that the testing, and it's an interesting word for testing, it actually means not test to prove you're a failure, it means test so to approve. It's like walking into a test in college and saying, I've studied hard, I know the material, I can prove I know this material. Go ahead and give me the test. It's a test so to demonstrate that you are trusting in God. And that is the real touch point of trials. Will I continue to trust in God through this? You remember Jesus on the night in which he was going to be betrayed, wanted to celebrate uh, the Passover for the last time. And he wanted to explain to his disciples that this is a picture of me, and it's using these pictures from the Passover that I want you to do regularly in remembrance of me, because this bread represents my body. This cup represents my blood that was shed for you. The whole time he's trying to teach them this, they're imagining that he's setting up his kingdom, and they're actually arguing with each other which one of them is going to be the greatest. They are distracted students. When this is the night that he'll be betrayed, tomorrow he'll be crucified. And you're saying, that's a stressor. They're not even paying attention. They're not learning the lesson. So he interrupts the lesson, strips down to just working clothes like a slave, and begins to wash each other's feet. It becomes very personal, one by one. And each disciple is embarrassed that the teacher is washing their feet. They're stressed. By the time it gets to Peter, Peter is like, you can't touch me. There is no way. I will not allow this. And so God, has, God in the person of Jesus Christ, is explaining, no, you can't have any part of me unless you let me continually cleanse you. Uh, you're clean all over. You need your feet washed. And so uh, he's, he's wanting a whole bath, and he says, no, it's just your feet that need to be washed. Eventually, as they go through the teaching period and, and sing songs, they go out, and Jesus wants to go up to uh, his favorite place, the Garden of Gethsemane, and wants to take uh, with him his disciples, and particularly uh, three of them, Peter, James, and John, to keep watch over them as he spends quality time in prayer. And he says, don't fall asleep, watch. So he's under stress, they're under stress, but they are so tired having a long day, they can't keep awake. Uh, in his stress, as he's crying out to the Father with what it will be like to be judicially separated from the Father's love and relationship for the very first time, he's crying out for help. And he goes back to check and see if the disciples are praying, and they're asleep. And he says, can't you keep watch with me for just one hour? What's happening here is our Savior 
is tried and his faith and trust in the Father is being proved. He says, the test of your faith, and in this case, it's a proof that your faith is true. Like gold being refined by fire is demonstrating itself as pure, and it's producing a staying power that gives you a Christ-like character of endurance, of perseverance, the ability to handle these trials, producing Christ-like response. You'll notice that Jesus, uh, when he prays, he finds that the facing of what it will be like to be made sin on our behalf is becoming more and more real to him. And so he is crying out to the Father in prayer. He starts on his knees. Uh, he ends up bowed completely to the ground. He ends up face down on the ground. He, he goes even further into a writhing on the ground. But he comes out the other side saying, not my will, but thine be done. That's the wrestle that we have through trials in which we say, I don't want my wisdom, I want your wisdom. I don't want my perspective, I want your perspective. That's not my will, I want your will. So help me as I face this trial to know what you would have me do. Give me wisdom to endure this trial, please. He says in verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect. The concept is, is gaining a level of maturity and stability. Perfect and complete, fully developed, lacking in nothing. All the character, character traits like Christ, uh, all the fruit of the Spirit. And we would not develop to this level of resilience, this level of maturity without stress. So rather than saying these trials do no good at all, we would say God allows trials into our lives to strengthen us, to make us better. Uh, all of my boys, as they entered teenage years, got into weightlifting for some reason, and some of them still uh, lift weights. Uh, and it's an amazing amount of weight that they lift. Uh, when they do that, they become uh, not only stronger numerically in, in being able to lift more weight, they actually become physically, visibly stronger and healthier as well. So whereas it seems painful, in a sense, to lift weights, where, whereas it is tiring to lift weights, where in one sense you're almost microscopically tearing at these muscles, you're stressing them so much. As they heal themselves, they become healthier and stronger and even more productive. So we come out better on the other side of trials if we let them have their proper result. We become mature, complete, lacking in nothing. But where we need to turn is to God to ask for wisdom. 
because as trials come to us, they tend to sweep us off our feet and they tend to confuse us and they tend to tempt us if we're not careful. So he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I'll vote and say we all lack wisdom at some times in some ways, and even lessons that we've learned before that we thought we have learned so well that we'd never have to face them again, at times of being tired, at times of being overstressed, we'll have to relearn that lesson again. So he says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And what's beautiful about this is we're not irritating God by asking for wisdom. No, he gives to all of us generously and without reproach, meaning he's not begrudging the request for help. Teachers, when they're teaching students, will regularly say, don't be afraid to ask a question. There's not any question that is out of bounds. Ask anything you like. And students don't believe teachers at first because they think like, no, you're going to think I'm stupid. You're going to think like I wasn't paying attention. Or you're going to think like, I already answered that question. Weren't you listening? But teachers want us to learn. And so they say, go ahead, ask the question. In fact, many of these beginner kinds of questions, we can remember ourselves asking when we were young and learning these things. And so he says, feel free to ask God. He'd be happy. In fact, he wants you to ask him for wisdom. And it will be given to him. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, regarding temptation, he says, he will give us the way of escape. The requirement is that we need to ask. We need to ask him, show me the way of escape. You must ask in faith, verse 6. In other words, in belief, in trust, knowing that he will provide for us the wisdom we need, we must ask in faith. And here's the interesting thing. We're human, we vacillate, and one moment we trust him, and the next moment we doubt. One moment we trust him, the next moment we doubt. So these, these stressors, you might, for the first five minutes, do really well in responding in a Christ-like way uh, to the trial that's come into your life. And five minutes in, you're all worn down, and you're getting all fidgety, and you're saying to yourself, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Well, the key to the reception of the wisdom is not vacillating regarding your belief in the Lord. And what are you believing? You're believing that he wants to give us the wisdom to handle the stress properly so that we do not fall apart, but we actually grow from it. So keep saying to yourself, what he's asking of me is trust. Trust me in this without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded, or literally two-souled man, unstable, staggering like a drunk is the kind of picture he gives, unstable in all his ways. So the answer from God is going to depend on whether we place our assurance in God. So let's remind ourselves what we've learned so far. Trials can be good. They're going to come no matter what. In fact, God allows trials into our lives for the purpose of producing the Christ-like character of endurance. And so we should say, 
This is not necessarily bad. This is a stressor for which I have the opportunity to learn endurance. So let me respond properly. Let me grow to a state of maturity. However, I may need wisdom in order to know how to respond, and so I should ask for it. I should not vacillate and trust one moment and not trust the next. I must continuously trust as I'm asking him for wisdom. Drop down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. So if we steadfastly endure through the trial, if we come out the other side, we feel great. We feel like there it went. It came and it went, and I am all the stronger for it. For once he has been approved, in other words, once he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. In this life, that is life in its fullness, a life of trusting in God and enjoying God and being able to handle the stressors in life. And that leads into eternity, in which we have an eternal relationship of eternal life with him and the crown that indicates that we have eternal life with him. That's been promised by the Lord to those who love him because he loves us enough that he wants us to confidently undergo these trials by resting in him. What did Jesus do when he felt that this night was going to be difficult because tomorrow I'm going to be made sin on behalf of us? He went to the Father in prayer. And he felt like he needed to concentrate and he needed to get away from everyone. And so he went to a very quiet place. But he wanted the support of his disciples in praying along with him. And he poured out his heart until his will aligned with God's will. And a huge lesson for us to where we would say, it's not what I want, it's what you want. I want what you want because what you want is best. So help my will align with your will. Gain that steadfastness that demonstrates that God loves you and that you love him. Now the warning. Believe it or not, it's the same word in verses 2 and 12 which means that the trial, the same incident, can morph itself into a temptation. Brother Dave gave me a, a description of cancer a few moments ago, and it was an amazing situation in which a healthy cell can become a cancerous cell and go berserk and go destructing everything else around it, eating up everything. It is amazing that this is even possible. In fact, cancer cells produce their own blood supply. And you say, like, how is that possible? It's like they feed on themselves. They're, they're destructive for a purpose. And any stressor, any trial that actually could be used to develop us to become more mature, more stable, more useful to the Lord, and happier, could actually morph itself into temptation. Listen to him in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his 
own lust. That means within us ourselves is the means by which we feel the temptation. That doesn't mean that Satan's not involved. Satan is constantly hurling things at us, hoping that we'll respond by being tempted. Do you remember the fiery darts of the evil one in Ephesians 6 and that uh, metaphor, that picture of being attacked? So Satan is constantly lying to us, constantly throwing things at our mind, which we could grab and think about if we wanted to, but it's our choice if we want to listen to the things he would say to us. It forms a temptation when we choose lust rather than love. Love is a trusting relationship. Love is a mutually sacrificial, giving kind of relationship. It would be the good human cell compared to the cancerous cell. The cancerous cell is like lust, in which it cares about nothing else except feeding itself. It steals from everything around it. It spends it on its own pleasure. It takes what doesn't belong to it and spends it on its own pleasure. That's what happens to us when we respond to temptation. It's what happens to us when we allow temptation to fester within us, like a bacterium that begins to grow and to spread and to make us ill. He says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The picture here uh, in verse 14 is an amazing picture. Uh, you could either interpret it in terms of fishing, for those of you who like to fish, or trapping a live animal, for those of you uh, who like to hunt. The, the picture is, within ourselves, there's a hiding place. And we have the capability of pulling out from the hiding place and making ourselves vulnerable to attack. It's spoken of as if we're doing this to ourselves. So if, if you thought of drawing a fish out of its hiding place by using bait, or uh, placing some sort of bait inside of a trap and trying to catch an animal, for example, the way in which this is described, and it's almost humorous if you think about it, is we both build and bait the trap to catch ourselves. So many of us don't understand how temptation works. Temptation is a lure, it's an invitation that you could say like, no thank you, I don't want that. Or you could say, whoa, whoa, let me take a closer look at that. Whoa, that is very, very attractive. And so it's a problem within ourselves. Satan sends these suggestions to us and it's whether or not we listen. Look at verse 15. Well, back up to verse 14. Each one's tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, uh, the lust is coming from within us. And in this uh, interesting figure, uh, Satan is pictured as the father. Uh, we're providing the conception. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, and that's a picture of 
maturing. When sin grows up, it brings forth, producing its own offspring, death. So sin, 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 death. What he's saying is if you understand what's happening to you, if you can break it down like this, you can understand what it feels like to have a lure within yourself that's responding to it. It could be just a trial that you allow to produce endurance in you. But if you latch your own lust onto it, it becomes a temptation that can become completely destructive. So we can't allow ourselves to well up within lust. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Unchecked lust yields sin. Unconfessed sin brings death. Satan is going to lie to you. If you remember back in the garden when the serpent was speaking to Eve, he was asking questions. And he was causing her to misunderstand and misrepresent what God had actually said. And then once, uh, you know, are you not allowed to eat of any tree of the garden, that kind of thing? No, there was only one tree that you're not allowed to eat. Well, why can't you eat of that tree? Well, because it is the tree that's forbidden, the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, no, it's actually that God is withholding something from you that you would want. Don't you want to know both good and evil, not understanding that bringing evil up against ourselves personally would be self-destructive, that we would ruin ourselves handling evil and becoming evil? He lied to her. And she bought it. And she looked at it and said, it's attractive. When she saw it looked pleasant to the eye, that it was good to eat, she ate it. She gave it to her husband to eat. And they died spiritually. If you look at that picture, then you can see how temptation functions. Jesus, on purpose, was tempted so that he would be a priest to whom we could relate. He even allowed himself to be worn down physically by fasting for 40 days. It was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, who led him out in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And you will notice Satan lies and misquotes and misrepresents what is the truth in what God has said. And you'll notice that Jesus responds with a quotation of scripture. He responds with the truth. In the Ephesians 6 passage uh, regarding uh, temptation and trial, uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of truth, is a, a very interesting expression. The sword is a very specific sword. It's a machaira. It's a short sword for very close hand-to-hand -hand combat. And the word of truth, representing the word of God, is an unusual word. It's rhema, which means a short, pithy saying. Like what Jesus did in the wilderness as he was tempted 
He knew the scripture well enough to quote the scripture. And as Satan was lying about what the truth was and offering him things that he really had no right to offer, trying to get Jesus to tempt God, for example, Jesus just quoted scripture back to him. In that way, if we understand how temptation works, and if we're gaining a sense of endurance and perseverance and staying power by allowing trials to remain trials that produce endurance and not to morph into a temptation, then we can recognize it for what it is and reject it. It's amazing that way, where fish will learn that a certain bait is bad. I don't know how they get that knowledge. And so why do fishermen have to keep changing bait? Why do they have to different, change to different lures? Why, why do hunters have to hide themselves uh, in, a, in a little seat up in a tree and wear camouflage and the like? It's because it seems as if the, the prey is becoming wiser. If, if the prey can become wiser, can't we learn from this? And can't we say, I see this temptation for what it is? And I reject it. I will not do this. I say no. In the 1 Corinthians 10, 13 passage, he says, we lie to ourselves and we say no one has ever felt this way before. He says all of these temptations are common. We're not the only one that's ever felt this way. And he says all of these temptations come partnered with the way of escape. What we need to do is say I want the way of escape. That's the equivalent of asking in faith without doubting. That's saying, Lord, help me. And that's saying, I will take the way of escape. Show me how to escape. In the example of Joseph with Potiphar's wife, I feel really sorry for him in this this situation. She was quite conniving. She was trying to lure him in. She even had a hold of his cloak. He allows that just to pull right off of him and runs out of there. She even uses the cloak to say he tried to attack her. Complete lie. But he did the right thing by removing himself from the situation. In this way, we know our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities. We know what lust looks like, and we're able to reject this temptation. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given... Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. Why does he say that? What's the context of verse 17? These good things given, these perfect gifts given, without variation or shifting of shadow. He is saying, trust me, believe in me. And what's amazing is coming through the trial on the other side is the blessing that we didn't even hope to expect. And so whereas we get afraid and we're saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, God can take us through the trial out on the other side and give us perfect gifts. He loves us. He provides for us. He takes care of us. He can meet our needs. 
Much of this comes from knowing the word of truth. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Whoever told me, and I don't remember who it was, but when I was a teenager, someone said to me, Proverbs has 31 chapters. You're a teenager. You should read a chapter a night every single day your entire teenage years. And I latched onto that, and I said, this will be good for me. It was so helpful in understanding my vulnerabilities and understanding wisdom. It was revolutionary in my life. And to keep going through it over and over again was a great encouragement to me. It helped me regarding temptation. Notice what he says here. In the exercises of will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And so he gives us the word of truth, the life-giving word, breaking it down, explaining to us how stressors happen, how difficulties happen, how frustrations happen. And sometimes I just have to laugh and I have to say to Carol, can you believe this happened? Can you believe this happened again? This is ironic. Why would this happen? And there are times in which I behave poorly, it becomes a temptation and a sin. But there are other times in which I surprise myself almost in the sense that I've known that these temptations, these trials have been so difficult that I've not done well. And as I've gained increasing endurance, I come out the other side saying, wow, you were good. You were trustworthy the whole time. You're strengthening me through the endurance that you're placing within me. So Heavenly Father, help us not to doubt, not to be a two-souled man, but in faith to ask him for wisdom and he will give it to us and allow us to know the way of escape from temptation. Father, we come before you and we praise you for how James, the brother of our Lord, has broken this down for us and explained it to us, so helpful to us. Help us then, Father, to live out what we've learned. We pray that we would not become haughty, that we'd be wary, we'd be careful, we'd learn the mistakes that others have made and the mistakes that we've made in the past. And instead, Father, that we choose righteousness, choose obedience, choose life. Help us to ask for wisdom and learn endurance. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.